from the fall continue into December, economists debate the causes and effects of inflation. The ongoing pandemic puts a damper on in-person gatherings and companies can't figure out whether and how to return to the office. These uncertainties haven't entirely kept a lid on consumer spending as Christmas spending is seen to be pretty healthy, driven in part by big advertising spend. The Wall Street Journal reports that global advertising spend is up 22.5% this year, much faster than was expected even this June and there has been particularly fast growth in digital ad spending. In this edition of Commerce Code, opportunity for millions by rethinking consumer credit scores. Dan Carell here, and this is Commerce Code, brought to you by DCA, the Digital Commerce Alliance. Thanks for joining us for insights into the evolving world of digital commerce. As the economy continues to defy headwinds, we turn today to a topic of who is included in the credit economy, who isn't, and why. I'm joined today by Emre Schahinger of Vantage Score. Emre is an expert in predictive analytics, and he's one of the people at Vantage Score working to improve economic access by using broader and better data more thoughtfully to create credit scores for more Americans. Emre, thank you so much for joining us today. Where are you joining us from? Hi, Dan. I'm joining from Philadelphia today. Great. I'm eager to get into this conversation. It's such an interesting topic. I'll just start with, you know, Vantage Score has been in the press recently talking about how the box for who gets a conventional credit score is pretty small and that that box just really hasn't been updated in a while. So what do you think these big players like Vantage Score can really do to expand the size of that credit scoring box? It's absolutely true that some of these models are essentially based on a set of rules that don't necessarily reflect today's realities. But since then, technology has evolved. Consumers' credit usage patterns have evolved. And the quality of the data that we can find on the consumers have also evolved. So just like you would not want to use your computer from the 1990s running Windows 3 on it or your iPhone 1, why would you want to use these outdated scoring models in deciding who you really want to lend money to. So players like Vantage Score have been really taking advantage of how technology has evolved. We are bringing more modern modeling techniques, and we're also taking advantage of improved quality of the data so that we can expand that box, we can expand that population of consumers. The benefit of that is particularly pronounced when you think about more of the historically disadvantaged populations, looking at minority populations, we're seeing even greater percentages of impact. And what we also see that at the end of the day, about a third of these consumers get scores from our models that are 620 or higher. That suggests that there are actually potentially credit-worthy borrowers that you are not including in your box by just using an outdated model. And there's a great opportunity here. You mentioned Windows 3, and I, I just wanted to put you at ease by mentioning I've upgraded all the way to Windows Vista now. Um, so I am, I am running that more advanced software. It's so interesting to see just the opportunity, right? I mean, there's obviously a problem here, but I'm curious. We're in a period of such change, and I'm wondering how the pandemic has kind of impacted all of this stuff, right? So how do you see the financial inclusion picture being changed by the pandemic? And what do you think is going to happen next year? 
Yeah, the pandemic certainly has highlighted even more vividly many of these social and economic inequalities in our society. So we've seen that for higher income earners who tend to be in more white collar jobs, the impact of the pandemic has been fairly limited. But on the other hand, when we see consumers coming from the historically disadvantaged populations, like low income groups, non-college educated consumers, minorities, we see that they've experienced a much different version of the pandemic, much more severe version of the pandemic. If you think about the job displacements that have occurred, they have been much more concentrated in industries that have higher percentage of low-wage hourly workers. These impacts make access to credit only that much harder for these consumers. We know that there's been an unprecedented level of government assistance through the pandemic. We've also seen that there's a significant level of borrower accommodations. Much of these accommodations are still in effect, particularly in the mortgages and in student loans. So the question is, when those accommodations expire in 2022, where will these consumers be? And will they be left further behind or will they really have the opportunity to really participate in building and growing their incomes and wealth? I'd like to unpack that conventionally unscorable idea a little more for our listeners and for me, which is what is the kind of characteristics that make a consumer, quote unquote, conventionally unscorable? In a way, to have credit, you have to have credit. But when you think about conventional models, they have primarily two criteria. Number one, the consumer needs to have a credit account that's been open and reported to the credit bureaus for more than six months. Secondly, they're looking for the consumer to have at least one credit account that's been active and reported to the credit bureaus within the last six months. And unless both of those conditions are met, the consumer cannot receive a conventional score. So think about a young professional or perhaps a recent immigrant who has credit activity, but it's less than six months old. They're not going to receive a conventional score. Or on the other hand, you may have a consumer who has had plenty of credit history in the past. They may have a credit card, but they basically put that credit card into a drawer somewhere for emergency purposes. After six months of non-use, those consumers also become not scorable through conventional models. So it's really dictated by how these models see credit activity through the lens of how consumers perhaps interacted with credit years and years and years ago and how good the data was back then. So the point of Vantage Score, as I understand it, and you can correct me as we go here, but is to expand and get outside of that conventional approach and add to it and make it better and richer. So last month, you released some research that really looked at those 45 million non-scored consumers. And I'd just love to get your key findings from what you learned. Yeah, I mean, this was a very interesting research piece for us to conduct. Consumers' ability to receive a conventional credit score is affected by their income, by their home ownership, by their access to financial services, as well as race and ethnicity. Now, out of these factors, what we found is that income by far is the most significant factor. Now, we've actually looked at this at a community by community level across the entire country. And what we've seen is that there are many communities, particularly many communities of color, where you can find one in three adults are unscorable. 
all of these gaps that are left behind by the conventional systems and processes, there are ways to address them. And our research shows that we are able to do that with just applying a more innovative modeling construct, taking better advantage of the data that's available, using more modern analytical tools and techniques. This is not an unsolvable, unsolvable problem. You describe a system that has essentially two big characteristics and in answer to this idea of, you know, who's conventionally unscorable. How long do you figure roughly that's been the case? Basically, since its inception, so these conventional scores that are now widely used in the financial services, they have been around since 1980s, 1990s. And to be open about it, very little has changed with respect to some of these underlying constraints that have been introduced back in the day. I mean, other than the existence of Federal Reserve notes, is there anything in our financial system that's been the same since the 80s? I mean, I think that says something, doesn't it? I think that really highlights the significance of innovation, the significance of competition, and the significance of using better data, better analytics to really help these consumers. Vantage Score has been around since 2006, 2007. And since our arrival in the marketplace, we have taken the leadership role in introducing a number of innovations in credit scoring, which are all aimed at the same idea of being able to be the most inclusive scoring model, that is scoring as much of the population as possible and providing the most accurate representation of risk. So we strongly believe in innovation. We strongly believe in competition and we will continue to do so as we look forward. One last thing, and you obviously have got a lot of analytical tools that you're using, I assume, maybe not your grandfather's regression model as well, but part of this has to be looking for new sources of information. You described the consumer that's taken the credit card and kind of put it in the drawer. But what the vast majority of people have out there in the world somewhere is rent and utility payments. So there's some discussion about using that. What would be the impact of incorporating those kinds of payments into credit scoring? Yeah, I mean, this is a very hot topic. If you think about it, home ownership rate in the United States is about 65%. So what that means is a third of U.S. households are renting their homes. People pay for their electricity, they pay for their water bills, they pay for gas. Pretty much everybody has a cell phone. I believe the latest I read was something like 97% of U.S. adults own a cell phone, so they're making a payment against that. So the idea is these reoccurring financial obligations show some performance information that should provide valuable insight on these consumers, especially in cases where the consumer has limited credit activity elsewhere. By bringing these additional types of relationships into the calculation of the credit scores, what you're doing is you're basically enriching the set of data points that you're developing these risk assessments. So as a result, what's happening is that you're not only improving the quality of the risk assessments, you're also finding more data points for a consumer to take advantage of. Maria, all of it makes me want to ask about seven follow-up questions, but we're going to leave it where we are. I'm really grateful for your thoughts and your analysis and particularly, I guess, just the effort you're putting in to try and drive forward a system that I suppose in a way has served the industry well for a long time, but really needs to have a hard look and to create some new opportunities for people. So thank you so much and have a great holiday season and new year. Thanks, Dan. Same to you. Coming right up, the story of someone with no credit score. I 
want to tell you the story of someone who never had a credit score. She was totally conventionally unscorable. I'm pretty sure you've actually heard of her. She had a moment of fame in the late 1990s. Her name was Osceola McCarty. Osceola was born in 1908 in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. She was African-American, and she left school in sixth grade to take care of a sick aunt. For the rest of her life, Osceola cared for relatives, and she earned her living by washing clothes by hand. She was paid in coins and occasionally dollar bills. When Osceola was a young child, having already started to work, she walked to the bank and deposited her first dollar. Osceola's work was revered by local customers who wouldn't have their clothes done by anyone else. After she retired, one customer refused to wear the last two shirts she had done for him. He said he kept them to admire the perfection of the ironing and their beautiful fresh scent. By the age of 86, Osceola had $280,000 in the bank. That's just about half a million dollars in today's money. Osceola was a dedicated saver. She said the secret was to be happy with what you had. So, not wanting much, Osceola gave it away. She set aside 10% for her church, 10% for each of her three relatives, and the remaining 60% she gave immediately, while she was still alive, to create a scholarship fund at the University of Southern Mississippi, so young people would have more opportunities than she had. In a rare instance of justice being exuberantly done to the right person, Osceola's generosity gained immediate national and international attention. Other donors came in and tripled the fund immediately. Scholarships are given in her name to this day. And while it came very late in her life, Osceola was flown to the White House to receive the Citizens Medal, honored by the United Nations, granted honorary degrees from Harvard and several other schools. And when she died in 1999, she lay in state in the rotunda of the University of Southern Mississippi, where thousands came to pay their respects to a woman with a sixth grade education who worked with her hands her whole life. Osceola McCarty probably didn't want a credit card. And that's a good thing, I guess, because she and her half million dollar savings account couldn't have gotten one. If you want to learn more about Osceola McCarty, just Google her name. It's a hag of a story. I dare you not to cry. To find out more about the latest trends in digital commerce and digital advertising, check out our website, www.digcomall.org. For the Digital Commerce Alliance, this is Dan Carell. Take care of yourself. And next year, let's keep working on how to take better care of each other. 